Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, welcome to this week's Driven Celebrities podcast. I'm Andy J, and my goodness, we have quite a show for you today. In fact, I've already, because the show that went out on talk radio at the weekend was quite an explosive one, I've already had a lot of people contacting me specifically about Jeffrey Archer. Your three guests for today are Matthew Kelly. Tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be. He's just a little ray of sunshine. The glorious and absolutely hilarious Catherine Ryan, who's brilliant, by the way. I thought she was amazing. And, of course, the rather controversial chat that I had with Geoffrey Archer. Now, what we aired on talk radio was about 20 minutes of a sort of 40-plus-minute chat face-to-face with Geoffrey. Obviously, uh, COVID-safe, etc., and the clip that we put out as well that, that was carried by The Sun and so on has, has had a lot of reaction because you'll see from that clip, if you've watched it already, if you've heard the radio show or if you're new to this pod today and, and, and welcome if you are, lovely to have you on board. Jeffrey's a fascinating man. He's lived quite a controversial life and he answered every question I asked him, but it was almost like he wanted to fight constantly. Like, really, he baited me so often, kept calling me stupid and idiotic and really tried to get a rise out of me. It was a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, Please do get in touch with us. I'd love it if you could leave a review. It's not something that happens very often, and apparently that's what pods feed off. It's the uh, the energy pods needs and reviews. So if you'd be kind enough to, to chuck us five stars and say some nice words underneath this, if you're listening on iTunes, that's the easiest way to do it. But reviews would be great, so we'd really appreciate that. I'm going to stop waffling now. Thank you for bringing your ears to us. I hope you enjoy the show. Subscribe, tell your mates, check out the back catalogue, because we've got so many conversations out there. And uh, let's dive in, shall we? Driven with Andy J on Talk Radio in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Hey there, welcome to Driven here on Talk Radio. This is the show that talks to celebrities and achievers about what drives them. And today, well, today's going to be a little bit feisty. I have an explosive interview on the way with Jeffrey Archer. And two other incredible guests for you as well. The wonderful comedian who, well, basically she's going to make me laugh in a big way, the joyful Catherine Ryan, and a man who has a catchphrase made out of his name. Tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be Matthew Kelly is my final guest. This is Driven, here on Talk Radio. Driven with Andy J on Talk Radio, in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Until last year, I lived in a flat with one toilet. And that is how I knew that I was in no position to take on a full-time husband. (laughs) Recently, I moved into a house with separate bathrooms. Bam, married three months later. (laughs) I've seen this man's perineum. I have never laid eyes on his toilet. And that is the key to our success as a couple. We had a civil ceremony in a courthouse. I didn't have a wedding. I didn't invite anyone. I didn't ask for any gifts because I'm an adult. How much time and money does our society waste on the frivolity of marriage, the handu, the flowers, This is a tough nut to swallow, but listen to me. 
Nobody cares more about your wedding than you do. So sign the papers and grow up, Susan. British women in white dresses, as if. I do love my husband, Bobby Kay. I love him more intensely than I ever imagined would be possible. When I bumped into him, he was divorced. In terms of available men at our age, ladies, there are two choices, divorce men and killers. Divorce men are excellent because divorce humbles them. I'm really pleased to welcome Catherine Ryan to the show. Catherine, you're about to tell me, I believe, that I'm, well, what I've suspected for some time, a bit of an average Brit because I'm not a huge fan of olives, blue cheese or oysters. Really? Yeah. How do you feel about Marmite? I love it. Aha. So, yes. I have been learning about new research with recipe box company Gusto, and they've surveyed people across the nation. 29% of us don't like Marmite. 34% do not like oysters, and I'm with you on a lot of those. But we're learning that if you mix flavors in the right way, you can actually learn to like foods that you thought you didn't like. I mean, is this going to turn us all into super chefs, Catherine? Is this the plan? We just kind of fuse a load of things and suddenly we like what we what we didn't believe we would? Genuinely, yes, because they say that if you don't like an ingredient, then you won't cook with it, even for guests. And I didn't even realize that when you add Marmite to a gravy or maybe a carbonara sauce, or I had it in a caramel apple dip, the salty umami flavor just actually makes it so delicious. I never would have known that without the Gusto Marmite partnership. And now I love Marmite too. And I was not on your squad before now. <laughs> so you've been converted. This is a positive yeah. thing. Catherine, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but you're a lady of the world. You have lived a phenomenal yeah. life around the world. So you must have been privileged to some quirky tastes in your time. Can you tell us some of the unusual dishes that you've sampled? Canadian food is very unusual, but I feel like it's delicious. We have ketchup-flavored crisps, which are, I mean, the best crisps. Gherkin-flavored crisps. Ooh. We um, have a drink. Oh, no, they're the best. They're really salty. It's almost like a pickled onion flavor. And then our best drink is called the Caesar, and it's like a Bloody Mary, but instead of tomato juice alone, we use Clamato, which has some clam juice mixed in with the tomato. You say ew, but it just makes it kind of saltier and thinner. You know how tomato can be thick? It's just like a real refreshing, salty, delicious drink. And then, of course, plenty of vodka. And then we garnish that with like pepperami and gherkins and celery, and it's, it's the best. Hang on, pepperami and vodka? Oh, yeah. And bacon sometimes on the garnish. We're cold in Canada. We've got to warm up. <laughs> That's well, fair enough. I mean, you obviously you now I mean, I believe I'm right in this. You, you consider the UK to be home now, right? This is where you where you abide and, and you've been hanging here for some time. Have you had to adapt your have your taste buds had to adjust to us Brits? Definitely. And when I tasted something like Marmite straight away, it was new. We don't have that in Canada, maybe in specialist shops. And I thought, ugh. and also the meat pies that you've got, we don't have that either. We're not putting steak and kidney inside pastry in Canada. I really had to adapt. Um, scotch eggs are another thing that we don't have. But luckily, I'm bang on board with the fish and chips. There are loads of flavors here that I do like. But I just feel like Food, to me, has been such a privilege and such a joy, especially in lockdown. I'm, I've just turned into a panda, pretty much. I sit around and eat all day. And I want to be able 
to go to people's homes in the future and to go out and to enjoy all kinds of different things. So I'm glad that I'm learning. I actually do like the things I didn't think I did. This is good news. And actually, I'm, I'm really enjoying this study because, of course, during lockdown and lots and lots of people have had food delivered, partly because they've had to, partly because, you know, there's, there's the fear of going yeah. to supermarkets, etc. And we all we've all had it. You know, the, the substitute. I'm afraid we haven't got this dish or this thing that you ordered. <laughs> so we've substituted with whatever. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I just like, yeah, fine, whatever. And I have discovered some new things that I would never have ordinarily gone to as a result of the substitute. And from what you're saying to me is maybe it's time to mix it up a bit. When we get a random flavor, let's just chuck it in with, with an old favorite or an old enemy and see if it fixes things. Do you know what? And it does. And my husband and I have been longtime Gusto customers. And sometimes we forget to go on and order the recipes that we want. And that way, they'll just send you something they think that you will like. And it's always a bit of a gamble. We go, oh, will we like that? And it's so high quality, restaurant quality. We always love it. I am putting mustard in all kinds of things I wasn't doing before, making all kinds of exciting sauces. It's, it's such a surprise. And a welcome surprise when things have become mundane. <laughs> it has been a weird old time, hasn't it? Mind you, you seem to be lady super busy right now. I mean, you're everywhere. Again, I mean, we were all nowhere for a while because we couldn't yeah. be. But suddenly you've exploded back onto the scene, which is brilliant. The Duchess, I've just started watching it on Netflix. It's great fun. And I've been listening to your podcast where you just managed to speak without breathing. Well, I'm sure you know a lot about that. I don't think I could do it live the way that you do sometimes. But um, the Duchess, it is naughty. She's a good person, but she's very badly behaved. And I just wanted to make a really fashionable, refreshing, joke-packed sitcom. And I think lockdown is the right time for it because it doesn't take itself too seriously. And it's bonkers. It's like a backwards rom-com. And I'm so lucky to have that wrapped before 2020. And now it's out. Yeah, it's great. I would be friends with the Duchess. She's cool. I think she's loads she of She can be cool. Good. Yeah. I'm glad you feel that way. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. I'm genuinely really, really enjoying it. And it feels, yeah. I could be wrong, but obviously you'll be able to tell me or not. Is there, because you wrote it as well, of course, you have mined from your own life a little bit. You've mined from your own experiences there. It's a real fantasy, I think, of how I would have liked to live my life. And what's true is the central mother-daughter relationship. I always put my daughter high head and shoulders above any romantic relationship in my life. And this woman does the same. She is co-parenting with her enemy. And they, they, they're they nice for the child, as I always believe that you should be. And she's trying to think about the safest way to have another child. Should she take a risk with a new boyfriend or just have another one with the enemy? And that is not my story. He's also a former boy band member. I have never been pregnant by a boy band member, I'm sad to say. <laughs> but I just thought, let's add some real bonkers elements to make it a fantasy. And it's so much fun. It is. It's great fun. There's lots of fun details. where it's. I mean, it's just naughty and, and cheeky, and yeah. I love it. Yeah, no, it's great. But of course, in your podcast as well, where you, you tell everybody everything. And mm -hmm. I was I was like, okay, well, what's this going to be about? And I've, I've been like hooked now because you really, you just unfold your whole life. It's amazing. Well, I believe in transparency and I tell everybody everything anyway. In my real life, I haven't got time for small talk. I want people to bring it to the table, honesty, um, authenticity, everything they want to talk about. And I have a lot of listeners writing in and I try to be 
an agony aunt and answer their questions and solve their problems. And it really feels like a connection that I've been missing because I can't tour at the minute. So the podcast has been an incredible outlet for communicating with people from my office. It's a great way to reach people, isn't it? I mean, obviously yeah. you can't tour right now, but but I'm, I've heard on the grapevine, you might be able to tell me if I'm wrong again, but I've heard on the grapevine that you do have a tour planned for 2021. And it's about, you mentioned your husband earlier, rediscovering your childhood sweetheart. Yeah, it's called Mrs. And it's my new tour that starts in September 2021. And it's all the way that my life has changed this year is such a departure from my last show, Glitter Room, which is on Netflix. And that was this anthem for single people and to say, you can have any shape of a family that you want. I never believed that I would get married. I was certainly not looking. I did everything in my power not to marry my husband. But he was my high school boyfriend who just walked back into my life. Isn't it funny when I was finally secure with my own company and I really wanted to be alone, there he was. And it's interesting the way that your fate just seems to find you. Is it cute or did we wander the planet for 20 years and we just couldn't do better? <laughs> it's like it's like when you have that deal with a friend, you know, when you're younger. Going, yeah. well, if, I, if I'm still single at 40, we'll be each other's <laughs> yeah. person. It feels a little bit like, but but a lovely, actual, attractive version of that, if you see what I mean. Well, do you know what's worrying is that people write into the podcast and tons of married people are reaching out to me and saying that they are still thinking about their high school partner, that their first love never leaves their mind, and they wonder if they could get back. So, Whoa. I don't know. At the end of all of this, we might have people traveling to their hometowns, waiting around in pubs, <laughs> hoping to bump into some high school hunk like I did. Well, that's kind of that was the the kind of big business plan behind Friends Reunited, wasn't it? Do you remember that yeah. site? And that and it then got bought and turned into something different. And, and that for me kind of was probably this. I mean, I never went on it, but that was probably like the start of dating apps. You know, you're oh, right. Because yeah. like from that followed your Tinders and your Grinders and all the other as where people swipe right and left and all the other. And who knows what that. those will. Yeah, who knows where those will go in the next few years. That'll be an interesting evolution. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, Catherine, our show is called Driven. It's about what drives people. Yeah. It's what it's about what celebrities and achievers do sort of mentally, physically, etc., to stay ahead of the curve, to stay kind of leaping out of bed in the morning and taking on the world, etc. And your story, I mean, you've had a, a sort of fascinating life, but, but one of the big challenges you've faced is, is no less than two bouts of skin cancer. They must have been kind of big moments for you where you're like, whoa, hang on, this isn't cool. How did you get through those times? I think that was fine with me because when I first had melanoma, which is the more serious kind of skin cancer, I, that was level two, like stage two, which isn't stage three or four, but it's still something at 21. And um, you have this ambivalence um, of youth. I really believed I was indestructible. And my whole family were quite worried, but I wasn't. I was always very positive about it. I think that ambivalence and naivety has driven me a lot in my life. I, I take risks and I try things because I just don't know any better. I just always think, well, I could do that. I could try that. I don't mind if I fail. I don't mind if I hear no. And I just move forward. So... I only realized after I was all clear for skin cancer that it was maybe could have kind of been a big deal. Right, right, right. It's almost more frightening retrospectively, as it were. Yeah. So, so the yeah. whole what drives you thing, I mean, it sounds like this this kind of absence of fear of failure is quite a, quite a big thing for you, which is terrific. 
I really think that people are arrested by fear. I've seen it in my family. I've seen it with my friends. Nobody wants to make a mistake. They're very risk adverse. And I was just never that way. I feel like you get one life and you should have as much fun and be kind and generous if you can, but just try to do everything you want. Why wouldn't you try to do everything you want? And then, you know, have a backup plan. I waitressed. I worked in offices. It wasn't like easy. But um, if anybody asks me, can you do that? I say yes. And then I figure it out later. I love it. I love it. Well, do you know what? I think that's you're embodied because the first time I became aware of you in the UK, I think I saw you mm-hmm. at the Banana Cabaret in um, in Balham. And then, like, oh, no. which was brilliant. And then the next week you're on this show called Bring the Noise on Sky One, which is, I mean, you had to throw yourself into everything for that. That was sensational. Yeah, well, why wouldn't I? And I have the kind of job that if people don't like it, that's fine with me. I really feel that we all like different things. Otherwise, we'd all be married to my father. That's what my mom always told me. And I'm not a cardiologist. If I have a bad day at work, there's no harm, no foul. Yeah, no one's died. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. I love it. Um, well, Catherine, look, let's just let's just finish off with a wacky flavor because you know that I'm I really like this study and it has kind of inspired me to go out and maybe be a bit more adventurous with my with my taste buds and and what I should be doing. What do you reckon I should chance my arm at? Well, you don't like oysters, like thirty four percent of the UK public try them because I didn't like them either. And the texture is maybe off-putting, but you put shallots and red wine vinegar and loads of lemon on there and it becomes this beautiful texture and tang and citric just joy. And then you can also listen to the sounds of the sea. I learned this from Professor Charles Spence. That enhances your experience and you will love it more. I suppose I'm going to need to try a gusto box now. You have twisted my arm, Catherine. Thank you so much for talking to me. Now then, after the break, I have a remarkable interview for you with Jeffrey Archer. And trust me, you are not going to want to miss this. That's here on Driven with me, Andy J, on Talk Radio. Driven with Andy J on Talk Radio in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. It's Driven here on Talk Radio. Now, my next guest, Jeffrey Archer, joined me in our Driven truck. Driven with Andy J. What's it feel like being a lord? Well, you know, this isn't meant at all casually or at all disrespectfully. Most people call me Jeffrey. And after 25 years, I, you kind of don't get up in the morning thinking you're a lord. I did for the first three weeks. Yeah. Uh, my son said, are you going to have in, your crest engraved on your pyjamas? You know, it was that bad. But no, after 25 years, actually, no. <laughs> and is that partly because for far longer than 25 years, you have been a celebrity. You have been someone that everybody knows. You know, you're never going to struggle to get a table at a restaurant or, <laughs> you know, get front row of the theatre if you haven't got a ticket, etc. You know, your, your name cuts through regardless. You don't need the Lord, if you see what I mean. To well, I like to believe that's true. And certainly with people who read me abroad, and I'm in 157 countries in 39 languages, they haven't got a clue I'm a Lord. They buy the book. They read the book. They don't, and every book says Geoffrey Archer. There's no suggestion I'm in the House of Lords. So you're right. All those people don't even don't even realise I'm in the House of Lords. In fact, one wrote and said, "Is it fake news that you're in the House of Lords?" <laughs> Brilliant. Well, you don't sit though, do you? you you've chosen not to be actively. Well, I, I, my rule was clear. I'm a Baroness. 
very good. Shirley Williams, who I was a great admirer of, Labour front bench when I first entered the House at the age of 29, uh, the lower house at the age of 29. She made a statement saying she thought that we should leave at 80. Uh, and so I've, I've decided she's right. I think that's honourable. The House is packed at the moment. If you put the whole house in, they can't even sit down. Right. And that's silly. Uh, and I think her rule of over 80 is a good one. So I haven't attended the house since my 80th birthday now. Well, you've brought up 80. So I'd like to talk to you about it, if that's OK. Mm. Because if you look at your, the timeline of your life, mm. you have had some remarkable moments, some incredible highs, some, mm. some challenging moments as well, of course, which you know, mm. we can touch on if you're happy to. And I'm talking about from, for example, representing Team GB in the sprint and running 100 metres in 9.6 seconds through to becoming Not the, the 100 metres. If I'd done 9.6 seconds, you gnome, for the 100 metres, I'd be the most famous person on earth. You I'd would. I'd be faster than Bolt. It was the 100 yards. The 100 People yards, thank mistake. you. They say, oh, no, you're not the only one. I mean, you're stupid and foolish, but you're not the only one. Okay, I'm comfortable say, with that. You've done 100 metres in 9.8. I wish, I wish I'd have been bolt, beaten Bolt by two yards. No, I'd have been eight yards behind Bolt. Yeah. Eight yards yeah, behind crazy. him. I mean, that's how good he is. Magic. What a runner. What the, a runner. But the point I'm coming to is... What that, is the point? Yes. Well, if we look at every, each decade of your life, yes. you know, you have lived a life of drama. You've lived a, a life where there has been something to discuss almost year on year. A lot of people are quite happy to just go down the pub and chat to the same people every day and play their pool and play some darts, and that's them. And that's where they're at. That is not the outlying life that you've led. The problem with that, Andy, and it's a very fair comment, the problem with that is you're born with what you're born with. That is the way I am. I can't sit down. I can't stay still. I want to achieve. Sometimes people, sometimes I think, gosh, it would have been easier if I'd been just wanting to go down to the pub and chat to friends each day. But I'm stuck with it. I was up this morning at 6 o'clock writing. I'm 80 years old. That's, I can't do anything about it. If I could stop it, I would. <laughs> so we look back, because everybody says at 80, you have wonderful life lessons to share. Yeah. You know, you're, you're able to sit down with your grandchildren, with your children, yeah. and say, listen. And there's all these things of, oh, I wish I had done, or I wish I hadn't done. So looking across your life, yes. what have you learned? What is it that? Well, when you say you wish you had done, I wish you had done, that, that's a stupid waste of time. Right. A complete waste of time. If you've reached 80 and all you're doing is saying, I wish I had done, or I wish I, you made a, you've blown it. Well, you're of course, I've made mistakes. Here. I've made big mistakes, but I've had uh, small successes, so I'm not grumbling. And I've reached 80, and I'm fit and well. My closest friend, Andy, my best man, was one of the greatest athletes of his era, Adrian Metcalf. Right. Uh, Olympic silver medalist, uh, a European record holder for the 400 meters, my closest friend at Oxford has Alzheimer's and doesn't know who I am and hasn't known who I am for 10 years. God. I was up at six writing this morning. He's lying in bed. So I've been very, very lucky. Yes, yes. Do you attribute some of that luck to your drive? The fact that you won't just go, okay, that'll do now. I'll just sit back and not do anything. I think Mary, my wife continually thinks that if you're still involved, yes, why should you grow older? And one of the terrible things about officially retiring at 65 and getting a gold watch is how many people do suddenly go down. Yeah. One of the joys of writing is it's only you who stops yourself writing. Right. 
I mean, I have a friend who's a, a brilliant uh, artist called Keith Grant. Brilliant. His paintings sell for 50,000 pounds. He's 91 years old. Fantastic. And he's up at the moment in the north of Denmark painting the sunset. Um, he's an inspiration to me, as, as, as of course is Sir David Attenborough, who's an inspiration to us all. Yes. I'm a mere 80. Look what they're doing. No, this is lovely to hear because, of course, you know, at 70, because you say, you, you know, it's you that, that drives yourself, but you tie yourself into things as well. So, you know, at, at 70, 10 years ago, you signed a five-book deal, which you then quickly revised because you realised your character was going to outlive the series, to seven deal, and then, and so on and so forth. Now, at 80, yes. what, what, what are the plans? Uh, well, at 70 is the official, according to the Bible, four score, a year, and 10. You ought to die any moment, goodbye. So I said, please, could I have seven years, please? Because I want to write the Clifton Chronicles. Yeah. I want to write a story that goes through a man's life and what happens. And when I'd done it, uh, again, going back to my friend Adrian, he was already in bed with Alzheimer's by then. And I'd written these seven books. It made me feel privileged and terrible about what he'd gone through. So at the age of 77, I decided, I'll tell you what I want to do. I want to take a young man, bright young kid, father's a barrister, brilliant barrister, who decides he wants to become, at the age of seven, he says, I want to be the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. His father wants him to be a barrister and go to the high courts. He wants to be commissioner. So I was going to take him over seven books from, and each book is an individual story, but in each book you get a new subject and a new rank. So he starts on the beat as a constable. Right. And you see him go to sergeant, inspector, chief inspector, superintendent, commander, uh, chief superintendent, commander, commissioner. But I have to live, because at the moment he's a chief inspector, I'm on book, mentally on book four. We're discussing book two. So I've already said, please can I live to 85? Because then I'll get him to commissioner. But the answer to your real question, Andy, is that's what gets me up in the morning. That's yeah. what drives me. If I didn't have that taking me through to 84, I may be in bed while you're looking for someone else to interview. So I've been lucky in that way. Well, the show is called Driven. It is about what drives people, what gets them up. We talk to outliers and achievers constantly. And, and there is this common thread now. I think you, know, you are now the 89th person I've interviewed in the last three, four months. All of whom are, you know, in, in, in top-level achievers. And the thing that I have learned, and the thing that is the commonality between, between the people I've spoken to, is that reason to get up. It's not yeah. just, right, I've got to wash my hands today, or I've got yeah, to watch yeah. who's on this morning today, or I'll just yeah. phone a friend. It's a purpose. But I'm also driven by my wife. Right. Don't forget, Mary has been chairman of one of the greatest hospitals on earth, Addenbrooke's in Cambridge, for 10 years, and the Queen made her a Dane. She's now chairman of the Science Museum. Yes. And now the, the, the university is asking her to build a remarkable children's hospital, to be the great academic children's hospital. Right. And she's 75, and she never thinks for one moment I'm 75. She just gets on with it. Uh, so I, I'm semi-driven by her as well. I, I married a remarkable woman. We've been married for 54 years, and I think that helps in a sense to have someone who, she's cleverer than I am, she's, uh, she's better educated than I am, 
she's not as driven as I am. And so I can help her with that, and she right. helps me with the other. But if you live with a woman that clever for 55 years, a bit of it rubs off. You've attributed three very powerful women in your life. Your, your wife, of course, your mother, and Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, those three have certainly influenced, certainly influenced my whole life. Yeah. Margaret Thatcher was the hardest worker I've ever dealt with. I mean, she would have uh, not uh, approved of this interview because she just said, what's that all about? I mean, who cares? She just worked night and day. Uh, and I guess that rubbed off as well. Mm. I remember, I give you an example that's the best example of the tricks she would play on you. We were down in Plymouth once during an election campaign. And she said, how did you feel about the speech, Jeffrey? Uh, and I said, um, I'd written part of it. I thought, very good, <laughs> well done. Yes, terrific. I will do the same in Manchester tomorrow. No, she said, no. Now, I think, uh, I think we ought to go over the speech again over breakfast. I'm really actually quite pleased with it, Prime Minister, and it went well tonight. No, I think we... Could you, could you join me uh, for breakfast in, at number 10 tomorrow morning? Yes, Prime Minister. We're in Plymouth. She gets in a helicopter. She flies home. I've got a car. So I'll drive up to London, get two hours sleep. But that, she loved to tease you that way. If right. you couldn't be there for a 7 o'clock breakfast, what, what are you doing in my team? And I yeah. loved that in her. She knew what she was doing. I knew what she was doing. But I determined to get not to let her get the better of me. And did you improve the speech? Do you know we had breakfast and we changed three sentences. And we, and <laughs> so we, yes. And we went to Manchester. And she <laughs> delivered, the, delivered the speech in Manchester. Uh, it was fun. Yes, that rubbed off on me. My mother is a classic example. And you have to be my age to say this about a mother. She's a classic example of someone who, had she been born when I was born, she'd have got a degree. Right. Uh, from university, she'd have, she actually uh, she got a degree at the age of 54 from mm -hmm. the Open University, That's I remarkable. think influenced again by Mary. But she would have, and she, she, wrote, she was a journalist for her local paper, and she, uh, and she became a counsellor. So what would she have done if she'd had the privileges Mary had? And yeah. she didn't complain about it, but she, she was aware that she didn't, women didn't get those chances at that time. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the, the world, you've seen the world change completely in your life. Completely. It, for the better? Oh, yes. Because in my day, I would have been held back because uh, of snobbery, uh, coming from Western Supermare, from a what they called a lower middle class family. Right. Yes, I, I think people have a genuine. If you're any good and you work hard, you will, you will make it. You will you'll get there. Uh, the trouble in the, the, the generation before mine, they didn't have those chances and opportunities. Now, your generation has more opportunities and better chances than any generation ever. And, and the hardest working and the best will come to the top. There's no doubt about that. That wasn't true when I was a child. And it actually wasn't even true when I first entered the House of Lords. There were some pretty average people mm. holding peerages, hereditary peerages, who had nothing to offer. And without cutting the next sentence out, there were also some quite outstanding hereditary peers who had an immense amount to offer. But it taught me the world wasn't an equal place. Right. Uh, you born in the right cot, it could make a difference. Mm. I mean, I, whenever I go to India, which I love, passion about India, and I see those kids on street corners 
Yeah. And I think, you know, that could have been you, Jeffrey. Yeah. Didn't you get lucky? Born in, born in Western Supermare, didn't you get lucky? And so, but the new generation, your generation, Andy, frankly, this COVID thing is terrible. It's awful. But assuming we do get through it, uh, yeah, you've got every opportunity on earth. Though I was interviewed the other day by a 29-year-old. Okay. Very bright guy. And he said, I want to ask you, uh, you've had, uh, he put the question you just put in a slightly different way. He said, you've gone from there to the age of 80 without a world war right. and without a major problem in that sense. He said, my generation are facing this COVID thing. He said, do you think we could have one of these every three or four years? Is the rest of my life going to be involved? And of course, I couldn't answer it. I'm not no. a scientist. No. I couldn't answer the question. But it worried me so much that I immediately went and told Mary. And of course, she couldn't answer it either. We don't know what's around the corner. He then went on to say, we, we've, had a, we've had a bug called SARS, which kills people. Yes. We've now got COVID-19, which holds everything up and it's a complete. What if you had a bug that killed people and held everything up? Mm. Wow. So he, that was in his mind at the age of 29. Yes. Yes. Well, that's... Uh it's but at 80, you see, you don't think about that because you say, OK, I've had a good arm. Who am I to complain? But I feel for that 29-year-old because yeah. that's he's sitting in the chair thinking, have I got to face this for the rest of my life? It's a difficult one to explain to those younger than 29 oh, as well. Oh, oh, it's so unfair on 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds. Just beginning out like they're not at school at the moment. They're not getting the proper education. Oh, it's terrible. At 29, of course, which is the, the magic age you've referenced, you know, that's when you first became an MP. Oh, uh, yeah. Forgotten that, yes. Yes, I entered the house too young. My bi biggest mistake in life, and I don't look back and complain, was that I entered the House of Commons at 29. I thought I was king. Yeah. I'm going to be Prime Minister. What's going to stop me? I mean, look at me, 29. Ah, oh, I wish I'd... I, Sajid Javid came to see me years later. We're talking when I stood for Mayor of London. He said, I want to go. Years later, he came and said, I want to go in the House of Commons. I said, don't make the mistake I made, Sajid. He said, well, I said, I went too young. I said, go away and make some money. So he goes off to work uh, for Deutsche Bank, makes a fortune, big success story, comes back and says, I want to go in the house. And that's great. Yeah. Now you you're go. free. Yeah. And, and within three years, he was in the cabinet. Yeah. He didn't make the mistake I made. You can go into the house now much later. And I particularly say to, to young middle-aged women, don't rush, don't rush. Mm. If you're any good, they'll spot you. Right. They can't miss you. I'll tell you why I said the pay is so bad <laughs> that most of them are pretty bloody average. Right. But I said there are some sparklingly bright people in there who you'll have to beat. But it might be wise to come in a bit later yes. and look impressive. Get some life under your belt. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that would make sense. Yes. I mean, your trajectory was, you know, you, you sort of joke about becoming prime minister, but it can't have not been in your sort of mind at some stage. And, and of course, there was this challenge you had with, with, the, with the investment that went chronically wrong, which meant that you were well, MP stupidity. for what, five years. Stupidity. With, that, with, the, with the knowledge I have now at the age of that was sheer stupidity and arrogance. Right. I invested in a company called Aquablast on the advice of the Bank of Boston. And the vice president of the Bank of Boston was a crook. Okay. And he advised me to, and I, I come from a sort of background that says if the vice president of the bank advises you, it must be, it must be all right. Yeah. Get in there, kid. So I put in quarter of a million and I borrowed another quarter of a million, and it wiped me out. The shares went from, I can't remember, six pounds to 
10p in 24 hours, 48 hours. I was wiped out and had to leave the House of Commons. I was lucky because general election was in a few weeks' time, so I just stayed till the general election. But I had to leave, and I was in debt and sat down and wrote my first book, Not a Penny More, Not a Penny Less. And I keep reading. It was one of the big successes in history. Overnight, I was a superstar. Not initially. Absolute rubbish. It was about 3,000 copies, three, wasn't it? So, <laughs> yeah. well, I got an advance of 3,000 pounds. And if you're in debt for 400,000, it doesn't make a... I mean, the bank no. manager's not impressed. And it sold 3,000 copies in hardback. So I got my 3,000 back in the sense that I'd done my bit. And then, but the breakthrough was Cain and Abel. I mean, that sold a million in the first week. And changed changed my life overnight. So given that you were saddled with this colossal debt, yes. you'd made £3,000 from, from book number one. Yes. Book number two was a similar trajectory, a little, a little bit better, but, little but bit better. not a fortune maker. 12000 Right. So what was it that made you go, do you know what, I'm, I'm, definitely I'm, I'm a novelist, I'm a storyteller, I'm going to keep going. I couldn't get another job. Right. If, you're, if you face the bankruptcy and left the House of Commons, you're not exactly top of the list for the job applications. So I sat down and wrote Cain and Abel, and I, I, I didn't know, Andy. I have to tell you, I handed it in. Yes, please with this. Really? Thank you very much. Really? And then it went for auction in the United States of America. My very brilliant agent, uh, Deborah Owen, said, uh, I'm not going to sell this, Jeffrey. I'm going to auction it. And she sent it to the United States, and the 11 great publishing houses of the United States were bidding. And it, and it's, uh, it went for 3200000 so that should have been the first clue. Yeah, there's a giveaway <laughs> okay. hint. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's but pretty Mary good. And this. I still looked at, out of the window and thought, in fact, we bought our beautiful home in Cambridge with the first payment. But I, I remember saying, that doesn't mean it'll succeed. I've known people who've received, too many people have said, I know people who've had big advances. Then the book hasn't. So I still was nervous. And then it sold a million in the first week. And I thought, oh. And, and it, it did change overnight, yeah. absolutely overnight. The whole world was buying the book. Debt was cleared. Big tip. Oh. Debt was out of the window. I went. I, I bought a new meaning to the words nouveau riche. <laughs> I went from literally from in debt to a multimillionaire overnight. It was weird. Gosh. Uh, and but Mary kept my feet on the ground, and uh, we were very sensible and very careful in case that ended as well. But right. it didn't. The public have very kindly been buying the books in millions ever since. How much do you mine your own life? Because you know we. I look at the things you've done away from writing as well, mm. such as, for example, we have to talk about prison and, and, and we have to talk about the court case, because mm. whilst you were in a real court case, you were performing at the West End, <laughs> yes. where, the, where the audience would sentence you, yes. or you know, whether you were, you were well, guilty or not. They wouldn't sentence me enough, that was the problem. <laughs> they were too kind. But, we, I mean, you must have been aware of that. You must have been aware of the juxtaposition of real life with the pantomime frontage. Yeah, pantomime's a good word, because I, I look upon those two years, 20 years ago now, I look upon those two years. Yes, they were uh, terrible at one level, uh, but if you're fit and well, uh, actually, they were quite useful to a novelist. I was yeah. mixing with murderers, drug addicts, all sorts of weirdos. And uh, five books came out of it. Yes. So I'm not exactly in a position to complain. Would I now, do I wish it had never happened? <sighs> I thought the second year was a waste of time. I'd learnt everything by the end of the first year. <laughs> I thought the second. And when they asked me, Mencap in Ipswich wrote to the governor and said, look, you've got Jeffrey locked up there. We'd like him as our managing director. Our managing director's just dropped down dead. Could you 
bring him in every day, take him back every night. We'd like him as our managing director, no pay. Wow. And I said, what, and the governor said, what do you feel? And I said, I'd be honored. Yeah. I've done a lot of work in charity over, over my lifetime. It's been one of my hobbies as an auctioneer and, and generally. I'd love to uh, do men cap uh, in, I think it was Norwich, I can't, uh, North, somewhere. And I said, I'd love to do it. But the, the home office trod on it and said, no, he must stay inside. He can't have right. privileges right. the others don't have. And of course, the home office was right. But where they were slightly wrong is I'd have been much more use yes. to men cap Norwich run, being managing director and raising money for them than I was sitting writing the diary in prison. Yes. Yes. You said that the second year was a waste of time. You'd learnt everything you wanted yes. to learn in the first yes. year or you needed to learn. What did you learn? How privileged I was, mm. how lucky I was, the fact that I'd never seen a drug in my life and the agony these people go through when they're addicts. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that came as a, I don't drink, I don't smoke. So suddenly to mix with people who are injecting themselves every few hours and are in a terrible way, that was a, a real eye-opener, mm. real, and how lucky I was. So they put me in charge of the hospital in the third prison when they moved me to a decaf. They put me in charge of the hospital. I was orderly, hospital orderly, with three doctors above me. But actually, the three doctors treated me as an equal, mm. and we got a lot done. So I would say to the doctor, what, tell me about the injections, tell me about... And, I remember the one that I'll never get over in my life was, I said, you had a long time with that one, doctor. He isn't worth a long time, that one. What were you up to? So the doctor said, I'll tell you, Jeffrey, he's such an addict, I had to inject him in his penis. Oh, there was nowhere left to inject him. Crikey. And I remember nearly fainting, nearly, I said, oh my God, he said, so he said, he then said to me, he was very kind, he was the senior of the three, he said, I'm going to teach you. You're going to go through what I go through. And so I actually had a very interesting nine months where a senior doctor with people who were drug addicts was teaching me every day so that I didn't, I wasn't shocked. I got, I never get used to it, but I learned a tremendous amount, tremendous amount. And so when you say, what did you learn? What a lucky human being I am. Right. I've never taken a drug in my life. What if I'd been born uh, with a family who were drunks and drug addicts? I mean, oh God, did I get lucky. Right, right. Let's talk about status. I remember once Status? I status, yeah. What is that word? Well, you'll see well, where are I you mean. going with that one, Andy? Bear, bear with me. I once went to a, an award ceremony, yeah. and I think it was someone like Rob Brydon, who is a terrific comedian, had just won the big award. And his yeah. acceptance speech was very simply, I'd just like to say hello to all the new friends I've just made in this room. You know, and it was a it was a, a reflection of just how superficial people are. You know, this guy's just won an award. He's therefore going to make loads of friends because they'll want to be around him. Now, of course, you have had various different levels of status throughout your life. Mm. But when the court case came, you must have suddenly noticed certain friends weren't really friends anymore. They weren't. Well, I'll tell you about that, young man. So you get over it very quickly. I think I lost four people who I thought were friends. Really? Yes. First Christmas in prison, 2,000 Christmas cards. You can move on. Wow. No, that's great. No, I'm fascinated. <laughs> well, because it's, it's a known thing that people like Barry Humphreys, for example, routinely Oh, Barry came you. to see me. Um, uh, 
the wonderful Scottish comedian, my brain's gone, uh, the, uh, Billy, Billy Connolly came yeah. to see me. Oh, yes, people were queuing. Uh, the, the manager, they were saying, no, you can't see him for three months. <laughs> wow. No, my friends stood by me, real friends do. Idiots, second raters, and would-be hangers-on don't. I lost four people. I could name them because two of them are famous, but okay. I won't. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Um, you've made a very curious point. It was a genuine question. I wasn't, yes, wasn't no. making any assumptions. I think I, I like to believe having my friends are, are, are serious people. They're not. When I got back uh, out of Britain and went and had my party upstairs in the flat, the first Christmas party afterwards, I had a 96% acceptance. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> no, I was lucky. You, if you're very lucky, you have good friends in life and they stand by you. Okay. If you're very lucky. Yeah. Well, That's a two-way street, mind you. It is a two-way street. I mean, I was about you to say that that involves giving back. What, yes. what are you like as a friend? Well, uh, I like to believe that I... I know this sounds pompous, and it is pompous. I, I actually enjoy giving rather than receiving. I actually get a kick out of it. I rang a, a very distinguished man this morning to tell him there was something he should read on page 17 of a certain paper, and he, he didn't know. And I said, it's better you know before you go to work. Mm. So I was the one who told him, and he was so grateful. He said, oh, God, thank God, yes, I'll get it immediately. So I, I try very hard to, and when friends are in trouble and so on, uh, and it's easy to say, but I actually get a kick out of it. Yeah. I get a kick out of that. Uh, some people, I'm sure, I've got one. I know, there's a sort of people who, when the phone goes and Alison says, so-and-so is on the phone, you know they want something. Right. They only ever ring when they want something. Yeah. And then you get others who just want to chat or others who are just good friends. But I can tell you the moment that phone goes, then they say the name. Oh, what does he want this time? Right. And, and I hate them. Yeah. Do you take the call? Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Are you a good guy? Do you think you're a nice man? In, in the sense that I give more than I receive, yes. You've done a lot of charity. Well, that's a bit of a cheat. Okay. Because I'm an auctioneer and I'm a show-off. And auctioneering, I have the chance to have the centre of the stage and enjoy myself. And, and yes, I have raised over 60 million in the last 40 years yeah. for different charities. And it's made a lot of friends and a lot of people have been very kind. In fact, I got a series of letters now saying, once the COVID is open, uh, over, will you be available? Can we book you for October next year? And I think, yeah, you can book me for October next year. I wonder if, be allowed to. I wonder if I'll be allowed to do it. I've just had an invitation from the Lord Mayor to do October next year in the, in the Mansion House. Well, will I be allowed in the Mansion House in, October next year, who knows? So yes, that side's been fun, uh, but let's be fair about it. If, if, if I wasn't going out in the evening during the season, which is September to December, twice a week doing auctions, I'd be at home watching television. Mm -hmm. I'm 80, who wants a silly old 80 year old? So uh, the, the, I enjoy it, I enjoy, and, but I get a real kick. If I come home having just raised half a million for some charity, I had a real kick at it. I bet it's a huge real, Oh, yeah. You get your failures. You get your ones. I once walked into a tent in Cambridge, in, uh, in Chelsea, where the entire Saudi royal family was there. And I said to uh, the man who works with me, Dr. Christopher Beatles, who does all the side stuff for me, 
I said, oh, we're going to make a fortune tonight. Yeah. Uh, they didn't raise a, not one of them. They sat, with their, sat on their hands the entire evening, and I had a, a pretty average evening and went home thinking, yeah. And yeah. then another one, there was a lady, a oh, lovely nurse who rang me from St. Thomas's. She said, I, she was West Indian. I, was, <laughs> I hear you're an auctioneer. And I said, yes, I do. Um, are you available this evening? <laughs> well, actually, I'm going to the Dorchester uh, to do Make-A-Wish. No, 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 I, I didn't mean late. I meant, are you available at 6 o'clock? <laughs> I said, uh, well, yeah, <laughs> 6 o'clock. So I popped down there, and she, was, she had a cake. She had a bottle of sherry. She had a book which I had to bring signed. Brilliant. <laughs> and we raised 322 pounds and she gave me a big hug in the day when you could hug people. She gave me a big hug and said, do you know we only raised 200 last year? Fantastic. <laughs> and, and that is just as good. Yeah. That was wonderful. I still see her in front of me giving me oh, That's lovely. No, no so that's really great. let's be fair about it. Yes, I do do the charity work and yes, the, the people are kind about it. The truth is I love it. Which is great. If I could offer you two different coins, you're trading in all of the phenomenal books you've written, all of the success that comes with it. However, you become the most gifted cricketer England's ever seen and you become England captain. Would you take it? You always want in life, Andy, what you haven't got. Right. I have never got over Sachin Tendulkar saying, I wish I'd written Cain and Abel. Wow. It kind of put it in perspective. Yeah. He just, and, and, and Gavaskar feels the same way. He says, I wish I'd written Cain and Abel. And I say, I wish I'd scored a century at Lord's. He said, no, no, stick with Cain and Abel. So, yes, I would like to have walked down the steps at Lord's. I would like to have scored a century before lunch, only achieved by three bats, three England batsmen in history. Of course I would. But I think in life you always want what you haven't got. Yeah. And I learnt it the other day when uh, Mary had to see Boris Johnson on, on something okay. as chairman of the Science Museum. And I was in the same room and he came over and had a chat. And he said, you know, what I really would like, uh, Boris Johnson said, what I really would like to have been was a successful novelist. I would like to have had a life where I wrote books and millions of people wanted to read them. And I said, well, Prime Minister, I would like to have been Prime Minister. He said, Yes. And that's when I think I learned. That was when it really came home. You always want something else, whatever you achieve. Right. You always want right. something completely different. Uh, yes, I would like to have captain the England cricket team. Yes, a pity I couldn't bat, bowl or field, but then let's put that on one side. Uh, yes, I would like to be my prime minister. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't the right person, uh, but I got lucky. He said, listen, go and write stories. Yeah. And that's what I do. I write, I'm not, a, I'm not an author. I'm, I'm, I write, I tell tales. You're a storyteller. Yeah. I'm a storyteller. Phenomenally good one. I was, in, I was in Ireland once. I was in Dublin walking down the road and there was this tramp sitting in the corner and he was reading the Financial Times. Only in Dublin could a tramp be reading the Financial Times. He said, I need Jeffrey, he said, huh? So I went over, he said, tell me, tell me, he said, he said, tell me, uh, uh, he was the one who said, do you realize you're a Shanaki? So I said, no. He said, have you got any Irish blood in you? So I said, no, I wish I had, but I'm afraid I don't, sir. And he said, ah, oh, you're a Shanaki. You're a lucky boy, you're a Shanaki. So I rushed off, I was doing a signing in, 
in, in the, uh, the big bookshop in, in Dublin. And uh, I rushed up to the man in charge and said, what's a shanaki? What's a shanaki? He said, you're a storyteller. Fantastic. I'll take that. Yeah, and from a tramp in Dublin, that was the greatest compliment Absolutely. I could receive. Absolutely. Tell me, how many more stories are we going to have? Have you got some? Till I die. Uh, till I die. Uh, the present series of books about William Warwick and the latest Hidden in Plain Sight, there's five more of those. That'll take me to 85. If you're asking me what I'm going to do at 86, I don't know, Andy. Well, but I'm I, will, to get I will be available to be interviewed and tell you then. Well, that, that sounds like a date in that case. That's like a date. I'll take it. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, thank you. It's very been much. a real pleasure. Thank you. Driven with Andy J on Talk Radio in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. here on Talk Radio, the show that talks to celebrities and achievers about what drives them. And I'm so pleased to welcome my next guest, a man who I've had the fortune of meeting twice before and haven't used an extremely famous line that he probably gets from everyone, <laughs> which is tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be, because it's Matthew Kelly. How are you doing, Matthew? Hooray! <laughs> oh, People think I get tired of that. I don't. I never tire of it. Really? I mean, how can you tire of a, yes, of a, a catchphrase? that's got your name in it, and I'm the only one who can't use it. <laughs> that's so true. I mean, I must say, I mean, I, I've had the pleasure of your company twice, and I, I mentally said to myself, don't say it. He probably gets it a thousand times a day. Don't say it. Don't say it. And I didn't. And I remember on both occasions, I was like, I wish I'd said it. Ah, <laughs> uh, but, you, do, you know, people, uh, people don't realise that it's actually 16 years since I did it. That is crazy, isn't it? Well, I guess I one of the reasons why they don't realise it, Matthew, is because it, it's basically repeated a hundred times a day on every other channel. I know. It is, it's become like a phrase in the lexicon. <laughs> but I don't mind. I'm very proud to be the Matthew in tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be. I think it's brilliant. I mean, Stars in Their Eyes was great fun. It, as you say, it sort of it put you hugely into the public eye of the UK. Everybody knew you. It did, didn't it? But, but of course, now there's a whole generation who no idea who that Matthew is. <laughs> <laughs> so it's even better. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, no, it's absolutely brilliant. I, I mean, 16 years is quite... I can't really get my head around that because it feels like just the other day. No, it's funny. I did it for 12 years. Uh, and then I think it was, uh, it was in 2004 I did my very last one. And then, of course, it carried on without me. Because uh, Kat Deedee uh, right. took over from yes, me. Yes, she did, yeah. But I'd taken over from Leslie Crowther. And the original who did the, the pilot for it was Chris Tarrant. But you didn't know that, did I you? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, that would, yeah, that would have been a slightly different vibe, wouldn't it? It would have been a bit more chuckly. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> be, you know, 
<laughs> yes, I can't do that. <laughs> well, Nor am I going to. As you can hear, neither can I. But <laughs> you've got to have a try sometimes. But this came, I mean, obviously, Light Entertainment and Presenting, the two of you were hand in glove for a long time. You know, it, it wasn't just stars in their eyes. There was game for a laugh. There was you bet. I mean, you were well established before taking yeah. over the reins of the show. I know. But then uh, I went back to acting. Yes, and uh, and and I've been doing pursuing that ever since. But I, I've been doing it all along anyway. You know, I've been working for fifty three years now. How does that feel? Exhausting. <laughs> I know now that now that this uh, coronavirus has happened, I'm having a guilt free year off. I want to talk to you more about acting and your phenomenal acting career shortly, but I, I must discuss something that is coming up, which is terrific, because we're talking about things that, that people are missing, but you have been able to be heavily involved in something that's just just come online, just the other day it began, yeah. and it's now running for a couple of weeks until the 18th of December, and this is the yeah. Neuromuscular Centre's Virtual Spirit of Christmas, which sounds, yeah. frankly, absolutely delightful. Well, it, it's we've done this for 25 years. The Neuromuscular Centre is a place for people with muscular dystrophy. And it's uh, an absolutely unique centre that was started off by my wife and uh, uh, and a couple of other people, as well as people with muscular dystrophy. It's for them. It's a workplace. It's a centre. It uh, it does physiotherapy. It does um, training. It does graphic design in computer work. It's the most amazing place. And every year we do a Spirit of Christmas at the Chester Cathedral. And we've done it for the last 25 years. And this was supposed to be the 25th one in the cathedral. And, of course, we can't do it this year. So we have the best readers and the best uh, choral work. We have the best bands. And we've decided to do it virtually this year. So I'm hosting it, and we've got some fantastic people doing readings and singers, musicians. It's a, a wonderful piece of work. Uh, it's all together now, and we have 25 of the best readers from the last 25 years. Let me tell you, we have three OBs, two CBs, a Knight of the Realm, <laughs> and between them they have 13 Olivier Awards, one Evening Standard Award, two London Theatre Critics Awards, six Film Critics uh, Circle Awards, seven BAFTA nominations, four BAFTA Awards, five Emmy nominations, two Tonys, two Golden Globes, three British Soap Awards, four Royal Television Society Awards, one What's On Stage Award, five National TV Awards, two Oscar nominations and one Oscar. And you can work out who's got what during the thing. We've got people like... uh, Alison Stedman, Jim Broadbend, Jim Carter, Imelda Staunton, Sir Derek Jacobi. Uh, who else can I tell you? Oh, I mean, I've got a list of I'm people here. I'm already, Matthew. This is absolutely good. Hayward, uh, Adrian Scarborough, Bernie Flint, Sean Dooley, Pip Torrens, Anton Lesser, David Morrissey. We've got uh, Roger Phillips, Lucy Johnston, uh, Monica Dolan, Rupert Evans, David Bradley, uh, Leslie Manville, Alex Jennings, Ian Bartholomew, Claire Moore, uh, Patty Clare from Coronation Street. We've got the lot. And they're doing fantastic readings. They're doing comedy readings. They're doing some um, 
straight readings that some of them are doing uh, reminiscences of Christmas past. And it's uh, it's an absolutely delightful thing that the tickets are only £5 or £15 if you want a DVD and a programme thrown in. But it's all being done virtually. And I set up my living room, which looks like Santa's Grotto. It's a bit like doing Jack and Ori from Santa's Grotto, honestly. And uh, uh, it's a right good do until we all can get back together in Chester Cathedral and do the thing all together, face to face, without social distancing. Maybe we still will by uh, next Christmas, but I'm hoping not, and I have faith that we won't. Absolutely. But it's all to raise money for the, the Neuromuscular Centre in Cheshire. Actually, in a way, it's a good thing because it means that it's not only for the people in the environments of, uh, of Chester and, and uh, northwest of England, but because it's virtual, it means that everybody can enjoy it. One of the awards that you, you referenced was how you have several Olivier Award-winning actors. Very yes, humbly, not mentioning the fact that you yourself are an Olivier Award-winning actor. I mean, we all know you for your presenting, and you've mentioned acting, but plenty of people out there will still not realise you are an incredible actor. Oh, you say that to all the boys, honestly. Well, if, if they've won Olivier Awards, I would, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was very lucky. I got into a, a great production with a fantastic cast that came from Birmingham Rep, and it came down to London. I did have Mice and Men playing Lenny. And... Um, Tell yeah, I was, George. I was. I know. It's just a fantastic piece of writing, and if you're lucky enough to get that, then uh, then you're always in with a chance. Steinbeck is a brilliant writer, and um, actually, I was hoping that uh, the Habit of Art, which I'd done already, was supposed to go to New York, and then I was hoping it was going to come into London. Habit of Art is by Alan Bennett. Yes, and. Um, that's a wonderful piece of writing. But also, I'm also doing The, the Dresser with Julie and Clary, and I don't know if you know the play, but it's such a great it's a great piece. It's by a man called Ronald Harwood, who, okay. sadly, who sadly died uh, just recently. And there, there was a film with um, uh, Albert Finney and Tom Courtney, and then it was done just recently with uh, Anthony Hopkins and Ian Kellen on the telly. Uh, yeah, and I'm telling you, Julian Clary is the most wonderful person to work with. He's so kind and generous and self-effacing, and um, and he'll be absolutely wonderful in it, and, I, and it's my privilege to be working with him. He's so absolutely what's that exploded that next on stage, hasn't he? Ju Julian really has kind of managed to rebuild his life on stage because of course he, he he made one joke that didn't land very well and it killed his tv career it was really it was a real shame because he was a, a big big talent but he has it, managed to bounce back hasn't he which is great and the biggest shame about it was that it was a really funny joke it was funny it was funny and anyone, anyone wondering it involved norman lamont and that's all we can say I don't think anybody else knew what it meant either. <laughs> they do now. <laughs> the internet has helped make a few things clear. Um, Matthew, uh, I have to ask you, because, of course, you know, we, we've, yeah. we've sort of discussed your amazing presenting career as, as well as, obviously, your, your newfound, oh, I say newfound, 16, yeah. 17 years on stage. It's an, in, incredible stuff. But if there was anything, I, I think I, I think I read at one point you saying I'd never I'd never go back to presenting. I'm done with it now. But but is yeah. there 
any show, because I'll be honest with you, when I saw that they were going to bring back Supermarket Sweep, for example, I thought, Matthew Kelly, that's a sh- he, should be d- he should be hosting this. He should come back. Really? Yeah, you'd be brilliant at it. Absolutely brilliant at it. Is there anything oh, I, that you would be tempted to, to come back for? Uh, well, I think for a kickoff, Ryan Neil Park is fantastic. Oh, of course. And I'm I, not knocking and, him in the slightest. And he's perfect for no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think because um, presenting is really a young man's job. I could, uh, there's certain things I could do, and I never turn anything down uh, that I, I, I thought I could do. But I, I prefer doing other people's words, and, and I prefer having other people to talk to on stage. <laughs> you know, I don't always make it up my own words. People couldn't. <laughs> say things more eloquently than I can and more succinctly. I had kind of gone back to what I knew, really. I came from acting, and I've gone back to acting. The presenting was lovely while it lasted, and I had a great time, and I got really looked after, and I earned a lot of money, and I spent a lot of money, and we all had a lovely time. Thank you very much. But it's time to move on. So I don't have any great desire to do that. And I've had a hip replacement, and, you know, <laughs> it's a young man's job. And Ant and Jack are the best at that. Yes, they are. And, uh, yes, they and are. one day, they'll be 70. <laughs> Let's see if they're still doing it. Do you know I'm, I'm looking forward to finding out. It's uh, The way time is flying, Matthew, it'll be here before we know it. I know. I can't get over how quickly it goes. I have six grandchildren, one of whom is who's 22. Goodness me. <laughs> what, wow. Con- congratulations. That's fantastic. Uh, yes, mate. I know, I know, but it is hilarious, isn't it? <laughs> it is. That's, that's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I know. Oh, Matthew, it's, I know. it's such a joy talking to you, I must say. Like I said, we've met before, but only on a sort of, hello, hi, nice to meet you, I can't use the catchphrase kind of thing. We've not had a chance to actually properly chat. And what a pleasure. I've, I've heard from so many people that you are just one of the good guys. And, and it's oh, really lovely to have that you. reinforced. Lovely and you are you. too. This is really your admiration society. And if you'd like to find out more information, visit nmcentre.com. Now, who's on the show next week? Oh, it's going to be a big one. Legendary actor Jason Isaacs, SAS Who Dares Wins Jason Fox, and celebrity power couple Martin and Shirley Kemp. That's here on Driven with me, Andy J. Driven with Andy J. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.